This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Hello there, I'm Andrew Cotter and welcome once again to Life on Tour presented by Hilton, a podcast where we get to meet and talk to some of the most familiar figures of the European Tour. Our guest today is someone whose diary at the moment is overflowing, a man with a great playing career but who is currently taking on the responsibilities of Ryder Cup captain. He is, of course, uh, Thomas Bjorn. Thomas, welcome. Welcome to Life on Tour. Uh, how are you at the moment? You're a busy man. Yeah, busy. Uh, no, all good. It's... Uh yeah, things about what's ahead of ahead of me and, and ahead of yeah, not only twelve players but the whole European tour. I think you know it's uh, it's a busy time and and any Ryder Cup is uh, when it comes up, it everybody starts fidgeting a bit when it gets close. And uh, you know, as captain, you kind of try and try and stay calm and and collect your thoughts with everything that's going on. But it's 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 difficult because you you prepare so much and it's such a long period. It's twenty months of you know, thinking and doing and all this, and now it's there, and now you almost feel like, well, I'm ready to go, so let's let's get started. And then those last few weeks now is pretty much just get them out of the way so we can get going. Okay, we're going to look ahead. We're going to look back as well. I don't know if in Denmark do they have a, an equivalent of "This Is Your Life." It's a television program. If you a big red book. <laughs> We look I back. hope not. We're going to bring some friends into the room here of yours to talk about. Oh dear, I can't wait to see what comes through the yeah, door then. No, so we're going to look back. We're sitting in uh, in Gothenburg. Actually, I got a pronunciation lesson as well from Fanny Sunison, so Jutteborg. Um, close. Is that close? The way you said close there suggested that that was actually pretty bad. Well, you're so. Scottish, so you struggle with words from the best of days. Yeah, fair, fair point. <laughs> Harsh, but fair. Um, actually, well, is Danish got the same sort of accent would you say because you're from Silkeborg so how would you say Silke, Silke? Silkeborg Silkeborg okay mm-hmm. Very so good. there we are so that is on what the east coast of, of Denmark not too far from here really is the a big strong crow flies uh, no it's not uh, as a crow flies it's a long drive though you've got to go a good bit south to get back up north but uh, yeah it's not too far so you uh, when did you start how old were you when you started playing golf I mean, I, I, it's really one of those questions that obviously as a player you get asked a lot and I couldn't really pinpoint it because I got a photograph of me sitting on my dad's golf bag when I'm two years old. Mm. So, you know, it was a family thing. It was, uh, you know, me and my brother pretty much grew up, you know, on a golf course because my mom and dad played a lot. So we were there all the time playing around and then it just became part of your life. And, and every weekend, you know, you got dumped at the golf course at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning and you feel like you never left till Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. You know, that was our life. And in Scandinavia, that's that's probably the great things about golf clubs. It's, it is a place for kids to be and, and hang out and, and just play golf and, and also hang with friends. And, and, and that club I grew up in was, you know, I felt like I had 50 sets of parents because everybody knew us and they were always looking after us and telling us what we could do and what we couldn't do. So it became such a big part of my life. And so to say when I started, it's difficult to say, but I I lived and breathed golf all my life. That's interesting because, I mean, a lot of us would think of that, you know, growing up in Scotland or England or the US, you know, there was all sorts of golf available to youngsters. But in Denmark, it was a pretty normal thing to do as well. Yeah, I mean, it's by numbers, it's a pretty big sport, you know, and it, it always has been, a, uh, you know, a lot of kids get in touch with the game, either through schools or through, 
you know, friends and, and there's always a golf club available. There's quite a lot of golf clubs in the country for a very small country and especially in size, it's so small. So there's, it's very much available to kids. And so it's, it is probably a little bit different. It, and then it doesn't have... It doesn't have that tag that it does in a lot of other European countries that you need to have money, you need to, you know, it's an expensive sport. It doesn't really play like that. It, it just kind of, it's there and kids go and, and the clubs are very good at accommodating kids and, and getting them into the game without it costing them a fortune. You know, a membership in a Danish golf club is, you know, that's what it costs in most American golf clubs to be a member for a week. So, you know, that, that kind of environment you know, breathes a lot of good players. And, and I think when you talk about, people talk about why Scandinavia is so good at producing players, well, I think that's the reason why, you know, that kids get a chance to come and play without having a lot of money. You, your brother, older brother, uh, he's a good player as well. Well, I he mean, was. You, he would well, probably say now he, he's not that good anymore, but he was. Yeah. But he had that good competition as well, sort of. Was, was that, I mean, as an older brother as well, would you always be trying to, trying to keep up with him? Yeah, and he was probably the right age. I mean, he's four years older than me, not just one or two years older. He's four years older, so he was, there was a real gap. There was a, there was a way of you know, seeing somebody that achieved things. He played Eisenhower. He, you know, he, he did a, played for Denmark uh, quite a bit. So, and there was a group of them in the club and, and in the surrounding area that, that was very good. So I, I always had that to aspire to. It was... And that's the ones you wanted to beat. It was not the ones that were on the same level as me. It was the ones that were a lot older. So I, I always had, there was always a drive to try and outdo them, and especially outdo him probably more than anybody. I should have done my research more thoroughly on your brother. We should give him a name check. What's his name? Soren. So, so. Like everybody else in Denmark. Like just everyone else. <laughs> it's not some sort of combination of Bjorn, Hansen, Soren, Anders. Um, yes, excellent. So, but who were you? Or did you have any sort of... The only Danish golfer before you, and not much before you, I could think of, would be Steen Tinning. So, I mean, who did you think? Did you see someone beating a path for you that you thought I could, I could do that as well? Steen and, and Anders Sorensen was there for a few years as well, and and you know, Danes on tour was a thing of you know I, I grew up watching golf. I would go home on on the afternoons on the weekend and catch the last bit of, of tournaments around Europe and we were fortunate that way that it was shown you know you could see every tournament on uh, on the European tour so I'll go home and watch it but it was very rare that they were you know right there in, in contention but when it did happen it was such a big occasion and, and I it was an inspiration to watch Danish players to get into that situation and and it wasn't very often that it happened, so so you remember those moments, and there were moments that were like couldn't wait to get out and play. You couldn't wait to get out and and practice and try and make yourself better. And imagine you were that kind of in that kind of situation. But you know those things when you turn into a good amateur and you start playing, you know, uh, big amateur events and and you turn professional, you you're focused and goes on trying it was always for me trying to become as good as I could be and not trying to be somebody else you know when you're 12 you can go out and play golf and you can go out you know I used to go out and hit four golf balls down the first and one was Seve, one was Felden, one was Nicholas and one was Palmer you know that was kind of my my world and I would play nine holes with four different golf balls and keep track of score with all but you could do that at that time because there was nobody on the course you know when you go to any golf club today you can't get a tea time I mean there you go you talk about Denmark being friendly for for growing up if I'd tried to do that in my course I would have been chucked off and said one ball only so 
anything, anything goes. Seve would have been in the trees as well. <laughs> Fal- I would have topped Faldo just over the, the ladies' tee. Actually, was he one of your, um, who are your sort of idols, not idols, but people you admired in the game beyond Denmark? Who are the world stars? I mean, you mentioned a few there. Well, Nick was probably the one as I grew up that was my, you know, the, the way he went about changing his golf swing and the way he went about doing things was always the one person that I felt like that's the person I want to be, the way he, he practiced and the way he transformed the, the way of looking at the game, I think, in, in the late 80s. You know, his work with Ledbetter and, and the way they went about it was something that really resonated with me and, and stuck with me. Um, and then as you... As you grow with the game, you, you start realising there are so many other facets to the game than just a hard-working bit, and Nick was probably the one that showed that way where you couldn't watch the TV and see Seve on TV without loving what he brought to the game. And, and then you, you kind of feel like there's such a combination of players that I took to, and it wasn't like one guy was, was the idol. You know, you sit and watch the 86 Masters, and you can't, you know, Seve, I love Seve, but you couldn't help cheering for Nicholas, you know, in, in the way that what was happening. So it was always about the golf. It was always about, I think for me, it was always, I had that inner feeling for the game in the way that I always felt like I understood when big things were happening by nature. And when that 86 Masters happened, I understood as a 15-year-old how big that was. And watching that made it, it, made it very special for you. And, and you started cheering for the moment instead of cheering for the player, because if it was the player, I would always have cheered for Seve. And you know, I got drawn into that kind of, every time I watched golf, I always got drawn into, it was more about what was happening instead of the individual player. And if the player wasn't Danish, I would cheer for what was happening in front mm. of me. Well, I'm delighted to say that Nick Faldo is here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you're sort of a poster boy for the European Tour and the, the, the whole progress that you can make because the Challenge Tour, which wasn't that old when you were playing on it, um, you had great success on that. And the first time I think a lot of people noticed you was at Loch Lomond in the 96 Gulfstream World Invitational, as it was called then. But uh, what were your memories? I didn't win a Gulfstream, though. We didn't win a Gulfstream? <laughs> you? I mean, that kind of, it must be a huge disappointment. Yes, it was. Uh, thought, there we go, roll out the plane. <laughs> did you get a trip in one at all? Not even that. Oh, anyway, but, so you played in the, the Challenge Tour and had success there, but the transition to playing the European Tour for you was didn't feel like such a big step up? No, I think, you know, I made some... I made some weird decisions in my career, and and but they also turned out to be the right decisions. I I didn't go to tour school in '94, and I had uh, I think I was qualified into the final stage, and I chose not to go. And a lot of people were like, why would you not go? Why would you? And I I felt like I had so much to learn. I was just so many things that were going on in my head, and I I just finished a year off on the Challenge Tour with a couple of good results, but I, I felt like. I was in a comfortable place in my, my life and I, I wanted to just deal with that situation. And I've, honestly, I didn't feel like I was ready to anything that was bigger than playing on the Challenge Tour. And the way I played in 95 on the Challenge Tour is probably the best golf I've played in my whole career. You know, the way I actually hit the ball and, and the control I have out was... Pro- and that could have... In your whole career? It, probably in my whole career. And, and I'm, I'm honest about that. And in the way that... And I, I played so well that whole season on the Challenge Tour. But it gave me the confidence. And winning the Challenge Tour in 95 gave me the confidence when I came out on tour to feel like I belonged. And I remember I said in a press conference, I said, you know, I want to go out and I want to win golf tournaments. And coming from Denmark, and I remember the Danish players that were on tour like, who do you think you are? 
well, you know, it, there was almost an environment of Danish players are not allowed to think like that, feel like that, and say things like that. So, you know, but that was the way I felt. And, and I think as much as it probably, in hindsight, was a bit of a weird decision, it was probably the best decision at that moment in time for me because it gave me that year on the Challenge Tour where I felt like I became a professional golfer. Mm. I felt like I could play in the professional world and I learned how to win. You know, I won four golf tournaments that season and, and learning how to win on any tour is the key to be a successful golfer, to be able to get over the line. And that's, that's the one thing that I always felt like stuck with me throughout my whole career. I could get over the line. I could win golf tournaments. It wasn't like I was scared when I got in that situation. And that's not for everybody. It's not everybody that gets in that situation on Sunday afternoon and they feel like they can win. You know, and, and as much as you sometimes don't win, but I, I felt like I could, okay, it's only about one thing and that's winning and I'll go full out at that. I mean, we'll come to some of the, your other victories and, and, and great tournaments that you had, but did you always feel, did you never feel scared really coming down the, the stretch? You feel nervous, but you always felt that... Yeah. I'm nervous, yes, but never scared. I was never scared of failing and I was never scared of, you know, and my, my thoughts never went to what does this mean and what does that what comes with it and it was never there it was always about trophy and it was always about watching the caddy take that flag off the pin on 18 and and keep it as a souvenir that was what it was about it was it was about achieving something and i think it goes back to that upbringing and and kind of some of those things that stuck with me in my early years that i wasn't allowed to think like that you know the danish federation and people in denmark was never you know they once you overstep that mark of what was the norm people like who does he think he is and I, I always wanted to break those barriers I always wanted to achieve more than was put on me from the outside is that because it's a, and you get it with other countries that it's a small country complex that you think well you should yeah do. there's definitely some of that uh, but I think that's also disappearing because I always believe that when you have a when you're from a small country you should always celebrate the stars that you have because they come in every sport at some stage. You know, when you, you know, we've had, we've had great football teams. We have, a, you know, we have great sportsmen in a lot of different sports. We have one of the best tennis, female tennis players at the moment. And, and you've got to, in all those things, you've got to celebrate them when they're there. Because in Denmark, you're not going to have a Danish female tennis player that's going to sit in the top of the, of, of the world. That's not going to happen and might not happen for another 50 years. We're not going to have a great football team every World Cup or every Euro European Championship. So when it's there, you've got to celebrate it. And it's the same in golf. Don't we have great golfers? And, and I look at some of those that come behind me, like Torbjorn and Lucas. Got to celebrate them while they're there instead of trying to put them down. Let them, you know, when they're, when they're not playing well, support them. Don't be hard on them. When they are, you know, in the, in the middle of everything, celebrate it. Because small countries always have that kind of, it's so easy to, to get used to something that happens in a moment in time and then you think that's going to happen all the time. Well, that's not going to happen. I'm trying to rank them in my head now. You're Danish Scottish, sports. so you know no, all I know about small this. country mentality. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, uh, we never... We do achieve. What are we talking about? Anyway, so Carling Wozniacki, maybe, and uh, Schmeichel Sr. and the Loudrup brothers. Thomas Bjorn, just below that. You could walk uh, no, Do you get recognised when you're... Way below that. No, yeah. but when you were in Denmark, though, you get, um, I presume, you get quite a fair amount of recognition walking down the street. Uh, yeah, but, but not as much as probably because... Because I never really, you know, I moved out of Denmark in 1997, I think, mm. and I, you know, I, I haven't been part of, of everyday life in, in the country, and I don't go, it wasn't until the Made, Made in Denmark tournament came on the scene that 
you know, you got to go back and you got to go back and do a lot of things. We never got to take our sport to the country. And we probably didn't realize, you know, me and Soren and Soren and Anders, how much people were engaged in our sport. Um, because we were just traveling around the world and yeah. doing our own thing and playing golf and, you know, always a bit envious going to different countries and they had their, their open, whatever it is in Sweden or in Holland or Italy. You know, they had their open and you could see how the players really enjoyed coming home and playing. And we never really had that. We had a little taste of it in 2003, but other than that, we never got home and play. So we never really got the understanding of how we affected the golfing community in Denmark through what we did. And then you didn't take part of that kind of going on TV programs and doing all those things. And I, that was never really my thing anyway, but I never really got drawn into it because I was never there either. So, so you don't become, I think you become known in a country through other things than just what you achieve in your sport. When you're there and you, you know, people are, see you doing other things than just your sport, well, then that's when they take to you. So I always got a bit of that, Kind of like, yeah, well, he doesn't care about Denmark. He doesn't really, you know, and nobody really cares about him. And and I think I was so caught up in my career, especially from late 90s to 2008, eight nine, that, you know, I wasn't really that bothered about it because I was so focused on what I was doing. And, and when you look at back at it now, yeah, probably you, I could have done more and to raise that profile. But then I probably at the time didn't feel like I had to. Actually, last year, was that your 500th last year, the Maiden Denmark, your 500th European Tour event in Denmark? Because they had Thomas Bjorn masks. There were many, <laughs> You many. still got one. I've still got one, yeah. No, I, uh, no I've got a, a poster of you up on my wall. It's weird. Um, but anyway, so, so many... That must have been lovely, though. I mean, because you talk about Denmark and the fact that you left and went around the world playing golf, but to see the affection that you're held in in Denmark and in Danish golf. Yeah, it was, uh, as a moment, it's probably one of the moments I will treasure the most in the sense that I, I never really thought that we would have a golf tournament that's as successful as it is. You know, it, it, there's a thing about that tournament that is so Danish, you know, that it's, it's not about superstars. It's not about, it's about the country and it's about the people and the people that play golf and people coming to enjoy themselves and have a nice time. And it's not really about him or him or... You know, and, and sometimes in sports it becomes very much about the individuals. Or, but it actually, you know, in the end it's about people coming out and having a nice time and watching and people watching on TV and, and that whole tournament is about that. So I never thought that I was in my active career was going to be part of something that, it, that would change my whole outlook on, on golf in Denmark and, and what it is. And... And as I said before, you know, you travel around the world and you go places and you don't really understand how many people you reach, and especially in your own country, what you do. And then you come back and you feel it. And to, you know, 500 golf tournaments on tour, you know, certainly for a guy that's been injured half of his life as well, it, it's been, that's, that's something I never thought I would achieve. And something I thought, I look at and think, oh, that's, that's pretty, pretty special. And then to do it there was just, you know, Soren got to do it a couple of years before me and, and I saw what it did to him and how important it was to him and somehow the numbers added up for me to do it as well, which, which is remarkable, really, because it could have been anywhere else. Yeah. To make it 500 in Denmark, did you have to go away and squeeze in a tournament that you wouldn't otherwise have played in? But... No, I didn't, actually. Okay. It actually I, I, got a, I got a phone call Madeira. in about June or July uh, saying, is this your schedule? 
And I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I'm planning to play. Well, then Denmark will be your 500s. And I was like, okay, well, then I'll try and stick to that schedule uh, more than anything. But it wasn't like, no, I'll go and try and play an extra event. And I was reminded that they were singing You'll Never Walk Alone as well in Denmark. For you. That touches upon... Um, <laughs> I like no, no, finding out your extra curricular activities and likes and hobbies and pastimes. But you're a big Liverpool fan, are you not? I am, yeah. Was I that am. through growing up 70s, 80s, just being a bit of a glory seeker and thinking, right, there, there? Probably, probably. <laughs> uh, but that's OK. No, I mean, growing up in, in that era and, you know, there was one football game, English League One or Division One game on TV in Denmark every, every Saturday and you would sit there and you would watch it in the winter and... You know, at that time, every every other game would be Liverpool because you know they were the best team at that time, and and so you grow up as a kid, and as anything, you, that's the team you watch, and you know you look at all those people that I grew up with at that time. They are the Liverpool fans and Nottingham Forest fans. There's no Man United fans, but then the poor old Nottingham Forest fans. <laughs> yeah, they're they're struggling. Them and Lee Westwood, they're struggling, but uh, no. And then today, you know, they. Uh, the younger generation all Manchester United fans and now they're all suddenly Man City fans. Isn't it great through your career, your, I mean, you'll have played, I'm sure, with Kenny Daglish and uh, Hansen and people like that who are great to, to meet people that you idolised as a, a youngster. Yeah, it's, um, we're very fortunate in that way. You know, we, we meet a lot of people and you know, sports people have a lot of things in common no matter what era they're from and it, that's always a great... You learn so much from these people and, you know, it, it's just very fortunate. But for me, I mean, too, obviously, any time I walk on to a golf course and get a chance to play with somebody that's played for Liverpool, it's, it's pretty special. So basically you grew up admiring Scottish people. They were your heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not all Scottish people. <laughs> um, OK, we've gone off down a Danish side street, which I've enjoyed as well. But let's go back to sort of 96, to the, the Loch Lomond, where you didn't win a golf stream. But that... That win sort of kicked you on to making your first Ryder Cup team the, the, the next year. I mean, that was an extraordinary Ryder Cup at Valderrama as well for the captaincy of Seve, which was, uh, he was a force of nature, as you know. But tell us your experiences of, of that week. You know, when I, when I look at it now and, and I sit as captain now and I, uh, and I think Seve must have thought, who is this guy and what am I going to do with him? Because I've been on tour for 18 months. And if I look at that today, that's somebody that came on tour you know, in 2017, making this team now in, in 2018. I mean, that's that's a short time to get to know somebody. Mm. And and he must have thought, this is going to be, I don't know what to do, and it's going to be extremely difficult. And for me, it was just like, it was happening right in front of me. You know, it was just going so fast. I, I was sitting in a car, and everything was just coming at me at full blast. And, and that was difficult to deal with. Because, was it daunting, that Ryder Cup for you then? Yeah, it was, because, you know, we go back to, the 12-year-old playing with four golf balls and these p- people were, you know, there. You know, some of them were, you know, Fowler was in the team and Sevi was captain. But then you had all the others, you know, all the ones that I'd grown up watching on TV. I watched them win majors. I watched them being number one players in the world. I watched them being, for more than a decade, the best players in the world in Langer and Wussi and Monty and Ollie. And, you know, these were my heroes. And all of a sudden I'm standing in a team with them. And thank God, Lee and Darren was there, you know, people that were in the same situation and also was rising through the ranks very quickly and, and was experiencing some of the same feelings, especially Lee and, and Garrido at that moment in time, you know, were experiencing those same things. And so we had each other, but it was very much a divided team in the sense that you had the superstars, heroes, European 
legends and then you had this new batch of guys that were gonna you know be the ones that took over i suppose now you know now and we we leap forward again to to this rider cup you don't really have those as you touched upon there you don't really have those raw rookies one year into tour suddenly making the team even the young guys are pretty pretty experienced yeah it's very rare that you get a player that comes that quick and and you know that was it was daunting for me and and i, I look at it now and i and i look at players that that are on tour uh, now that that could play that role and there aren't that many that could have that Kate would have come through that quick but you know there's still some where you could have thought well, yeah, if he'd kicked on a bit there he, he could have had a chance but it's a big ask for a young player and, and I went into that Ryder Cup just like okay well I'm just going to do what, I, what I've done all year in 96 and through 97 I'm just going to enjoy every moment I'm going to take in everything that's thrown at me and I'm just going to be I'm just going to sit in a corner and let I mean it was Seve, you know, I'm going to let him decide what's going on and what's going to do with me. And I was willing to play on Sunday. Hmm. You know, I knew I was going to play and I was willing to take that role. If he wasn't going to use me until Sunday, it wasn't a, a situation where I felt like, oh, I want to play. I want to be out there every match and why is he not playing me? I, I never, that never entered my mind. I was like, I'm just going to go see what this is, you know, because that was how new it was to me. I was watching the 1995 Ryder Cup, like thinking, well, that's, so far away from anything that I could could ever achieve, and two years after I was I was in the team. Yeah, ninety nine you didn't didn't make. You made the two thousand one team, which became two thousand and and two. In fact, on that, I mean, your your career has had patches where you were you know unbeatable, one of the world's best. But then dips like like most players. But can you explain? That why there maybe wasn't, did you feel there wasn't a consistency at times? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a lot of things that went on. I think loss of focus. I mean, the first time I had a dip was loss of focus and, and probably thinking that, that things were coming a bit easy. Hmm. Um, I played so well for 95 through 98 and probably lost the focus and thought, took it maybe a little bit for granted that I was going to win golf tournaments, I was going to be part of, of these things and... So the first time it was loss of focus and, and then later it was, you know, some of the big dips were lost in technique and all those things that golfers get into. And probably the biggest fault in my career is that I've, I've never let myself play when I needed to play. I always kept working at my technique and kept, I was always so dependent on my technique, feeling that my technique was correct instead of just go and play because later you know when I made the 14 team that was definitely not on technique that was more on just pure will and desire to to do something so but that's that's the way sports is sometimes you get lost a little bit in in different things and and I certainly through my dips have been way too hard on myself as well in the sense that I and that's that prolonged the dip more than anything when you say you're hard on yourself I mean you do come across sometimes as quite an intense character um do you think that (laughs) No, no, I, I know, I know, fun, Thomas. But um, do you think that there is that you have been slightly your, your temperament can be an asset when you're focused and coming down the stretch? But sometimes that you do beat yourself up a bit too much. Yeah, I think I think not so much the temperament thing on the golf course. I think that never really because that's always been a. I've been good at when I show temper on the golf course. I've always been good at using it to do something good with it, and I, that, that's always been my character. I think the 
not understanding that more is not always better. You know, it's not. It was not always about who could hit the most balls and who could do the most. If I had structured my practice sometimes a bit better and structured everything I was doing golf-wise better, then then I could have gotten more out of it. And I think that was always uh, my downside. And that intensity of having to do this, having to be on that range, having to work hard. Well, you know, modern golf will show you that that's probably not always the way, you know, that's that's certainly not the way the best players today work. You know, they, they certainly don't put in the hours that, that we used to. Um, mm. But then they put hours in on a lot of other different things. Let's zip back to 2002 then. How was that Ryder Cup experience different? How did that compare to 1997? You were a different player by then, different person. Yeah, I was. And, and Sam was, as, as a captain, was brilliant at making us all feel like we're the best player in the world and and that was um, you know he, he had a obviously more time to do it as well but that was a great Ryder Cup for me in the way that I felt so much part of that group in the team that was was part of uh, should pull that train and make sure that we and Dow and I went out that first morning and that was a moment that probably for me Ryder Cup wise that those 18 holes is probably the ones that stand out the most in the sense of the golf that was played but also how I felt about it and so it was um, it was an amazing Ryder Cup when it was happening because we had a team that it was certainly not the greatest European team we've ever had but it was a team that got on really well and we 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 worked very hard and we were very supportive of each other and it was a team room that was fantastic you know I felt like that was a Ryder Cup where I really felt what it was to be part of a European team. So for what we were as a team, we, we did unbelievably well. And, and it was an amazing thing to be a part of. It's amazing to think that as a player, the next time, as you've mentioned already, 2014, that would be the next time you'd be involved in a Ryder Cup. And that came as a bit of, you said, just getting yourself in there and sheer willpower. So to make that team must have been sort of a, a bit of a present for you. Yeah, it was. And, and I, to be honest, I don't think I'd be sitting as Ryder Cup captain if I hadn't made that team, you know, because uh, that was probably the one thing that I felt like uh, I, I could probably do that role. And maybe a couple of people around me also thought I could do that role after, after that 14 Ryder Cup. But it was, I honestly thought, you know, I, I got, I wouldn't say I got close, but I still had a sniff at, at the 12 team and, and kind of lost a bit of momentum over that summer leading into Medina. And, and I thought, well, that was probably my last chance, to be honest. I felt like that the golf wasn't quite there. But then I had an unbelievable start to that, that Ryder Cup campaign by, by winning in Sun City. And, and I you know, started played some really good golf uh, at the end of 13. And, and then you make that team in 14. And it was over the summer, it was... It wasn't pretty and it wasn't great, but it was sheer just wanting to make it and go out and play as hard as I could. And there was probably only one real wobble in the whole thing in my belief, and that was when I when I didn't win at Wentworth after I'd shot, hmm. I think I shot 62 in the, on that uh, Thursday, and, and Rory ended up winning. I, I felt like oof, I, I let one go here, and that was probably my opportunity. Well, it was my opportunity just to lock everything up and start focusing on it. And then the summer became a little bit tough. And to be honest... It gives me a great perspective of what it's like to play a Ryder Cup when you don't feel great about your golf game. And, and that's uh, 
as much as it's the best place in the world to be, it's also a very tough place to be if you're not playing well. Uh, and you know that you're going to have somebody who's just this in the week, even in the 12, you know, there are 12 great players that you're going to have, but there'll be somebody who's just struggling a little bit with their game. So you're able to help with that now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you've got to have a, a lot of guys that are playing well, but there's there's definitely going to be somebody that's not 100% on top of the game, and that's okay. You know, and, and you can achieve things uh, in the Ryder Cup. You know, it's match play, and, and you can still go out and win points even though you're not playing great because most top players in the world when they're not playing great it's more their mistakes that come out and but they're still you know they're still hitting plenty of good shots and they're still making plenty of birdies so in match play you can still achieve things when you're not playing great and that's a great belief to have I think when you go into Ryder Cup that it's it's not about playing great it's about winning points. Right, the majors, um, the two thousands. I mean, you know, you saw. I mean, it's amazing to think you've just come back from the PGA Championship, where Tiger Woods is second, and you know, you. I was going to say you gave him some good runs for his his money, but it, uh, he was just it's such a different level uh, for a spell that to finish second to Tiger Woods as you did at St Andrews was uh, you know, certainly no disgrace. Did you ever feel, you felt you could compete with any player, but did you feel sometimes when Tiger was playing that we're playing for second place? When he was on, on his absolute best, absolutely. There was no, uh, at that time, from when he would come out and he wins the Masters uh, the first time and then through the better part of 2001-2, you know, there was no doubt that when he was on, it was just a question of let him run and then just <laughs> see what happens because it was up to him to mess up. And I think when you're at, your, at the peak of your own career and those things are, are the things that happen in front of you, um, you know, you always felt a little bit like this is... Uh, the majors became such an unachievable thing for a lot of guys at that moment in time you know I think for me and and also for guys like Darren and Lee and people who are around it, it became a very like well you know we might get one or two chances a year where he's where he's not on and I think that sits in your mind a little bit that it, you you don't come into the majors with the same kind of attitude that you would when you walked out to a regular tour event and just went at it and it was all about winning because you knew there was one guy that could just run away and to be honest, being inside the ropes with Tiger at, at those tournaments, I, I played with him on Saturday at Pebble Beach uh, when he won there, and it was just, it was just something that you'd never seen. And, and you know, in today's game, you see the things that that he did, but you know, that's 20 years ago. I mean, at Pebble Beach, and you mentioned that there when you're actually playing with him, and he wins it eventually by 15 shots. I mean, are you, a player is so focused on their own game, but are you still taking time to go, wow, this, this is pretty special? I always felt like one of my great attitudes with learning to play with Tiger was that I always had the attitude that I have the front row seat to watching the best player that's ever going to play the game. I'm right there watching it up close, and there's all these people outside the ropes that's paying money to come in and watch him, and they might see one or two shots around. You know, I'm right there with him. I'm watching every shot, and I'm watching a very unique person doing what he does best and that was for me a special place to to be and I think that's how I learned to play with him because I, I eventually did learn to play with him uh, and I, I learned how to play my golf and and be out there and in, enjoying watching what he did but when he was absolutely his best it was uh, I wasn't scared of it but it was it was frightening how good he was. OK, well, not a major, but 2001 Dubai Desert Classic, playing against Tiger and, and taking him down. So, again, you weren't, you know, 
you admired him, but you weren't intimidated by him. No, but it was it was you know I played really well coming into it, and we got off to those the, that start. I think I shot sixty four, sixty six, and he shot two sixty fours. And I was just on Friday night thinking, okay, well I'm just going to try and hang on to his shirt tails and see what happens. You know, if he's going to go, he's going to go, and if I can't keep up, I can't keep up, and that that's fine. But I'm just going to try and hang on, and and in the end, you know, I hung on. And, and I hold a putt on the 71st hole and, and all of a sudden we were tied for the lead and it was just a question of trying to be there, trying to be there and see what happens. And very rarely does he make a mistake and he did there and I was there to benefit from it. But, you know, it was, it was just a moment where I got so right into that tournament and that moment and, and that kind of thing between me and him through the whole week you know we were on that golf course and it's you know on a on a Thursday morning you know you go out and play and you're in your own golf and you're you're chatting and all that and it it just kind of grew and in the end it was me me and Tiger against each other and there was not much conversation but it was a it was a fantastic uh, fantastic four days Um, I honestly think that when we when he looks back at it I think it was four days he enjoyed as much as he always wants to win but um, I think he enjoyed it as well every golfer wants to be or every professional golfer I'm sure wants to be the best golfer in the world but having seen the the fuss the madness around Tiger Woods at his best would you envy him that would you want his life for the, the the major titles i don't think you can put yourself in his life and in it you know he, you can't put yourself in his upbringing and and the way that he was looked upon from an early age and would you want it well i've I grown up so differently you know and and for me that doesn't really resonate with me at all what what tiger's life is and and how you know i i have a relationship with tiger that i enjoy and when i see him you know we we have that relationship that we have and and that's what it is but I, I don't try and put myself in what is his life and what does he go through I can imagine that there's a lot of great things that come with it and there's an extreme amount of difficult things that come with his life and, and being a star to his level but the one thing I will say is that experiencing him at his best around that time and experiencing what's happening in the game of golf now with him coming back is two of the most amazing things I've seen in any sport. Um, When he was his best, it was great for the game of golf because it it broke down some barriers that I never thought this game would break down. And seeing him coming back now to playing somewhat near his best uh, at moments is amazing for the game of golf and it's it's just fantastic to see actually you mentioned his upbringing i know i'm jumping around on the on the timeline here a little bit but back to when you were wanting to play golf as a career did your parents were they supportive of that because was it a viable career for for someone to to go to in denmark (laughs) when i said to my mom i wanted to be a professional golfer she said definitely not that is not happening so i was like Okay, how do we get around this? So, what stage was this? How good were you at this? No, point? this was uh, this is I'm about twenty. So, you know, I I could make my own decisions, but fortunately, my brother came back. He was in college in America, and he came back, and you know, he was always very. I think he was always very supportive of of me doing things that he never probably did himself. You know, he he never really pursued. He never pursued a professional career, and and probably sometimes regretted it a little bit. So he was very. He came back from America and was very positive about it and, and pushed my mum more than it. My dad was always a bit like, he, he could see it being quite good fun, I think, but um, he pushed my mum a bit into a corner and then in, in the end it came round to the idea. But um, 
Did you have a fallback career option? No. Like you. Not, I would <laughs> I be can't. doing podcasts about golf, so not much. Oh, come on. These are, this is, a, this is a, a career high for all concerned. Um, this is <laughs> okay, well, let's move forward then to, to we've talked about, touched upon the majors. But, I mean, the one that people remember before, and you'll be sick of talking about it, I'm sure, but in 2003 at St. George's was an extraordinary Open Championship. And I don't know if you... I, First of all, it's interesting that you were able to go and play in Ireland the next week and, and compete. How quickly you were able to put things behind you? Do you have regrets or do you think about it still, St George's? Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I've always said that, that St George's will always sit with me somewhere and, and not feel great unless I won a major. And I didn't. So there's, there's obviously a little corner there that feels like, yeah, I, I should have won a major. And, and I had the best opportunity in the world to do it so yeah there is there's regrets I don't know because when you're out on the golf course and you're playing in those situations you are doing everything you can and you're trying to do everything right and you hit the wrong shot at the wrong time and things go go wrong so that that's what happens in golf so regrets is it's a strong thing because it wasn't like I was trying to make five on 16 it wasn't like I was trying to throw it away I was trying to do everything right and and it didn't unfold that way so so I don't feel like regrets is the it's the right word I I feel like would you want to have that moment again yeah because nine times or 99 times out of 100 you will win the golf tournament from there so and that's what goes back to what I said I was never scared and I wasn't scared in that moment and and people talk about choking and so you know professional sports people don't choke in those situations I don't believe because when you can you can choke in that situation if you never won and you never been in a situation of winning before and you just kind of completely collapsed that that you can choke in but it wasn't like I didn't know how to win golf tournaments I it wasn't as I stood up and I felt like oh this is I don't want this I, I feel like I I'm in a situation I can't control and that was not how I felt now I hit the wrong wrong golf shot at that moment in time well that happens in golf uh, week in week out and in every round of golf a player hits the wrong golf shot um, so that's what happened and so I look back at it and, I, and I'm like I've never been bitter about it and I've never been feeling like I, I wanted to knock myself on the head with it I, I, yeah, I've been sad at times about it because I felt like when you brought yourself into that position there's some game in there that that I wouldn't say nobody deserves to win a major, but there's some game in there that feels like I could have won a major championship and, and, and I had that opportunity. So, yeah, I, sometimes I've been sad about it. But I also sometimes think what happened if, what would have happened if I won one, would I then have kicked on to win more? You know, that, that kind of, it, it probably was a defining moment of, of my career in achieving things. But, you know, then I also have this kind of, and I said this before, when you grow up in a country where golf is not something that is looked upon as people achieving things and where I came from and to what I have achieved, um, it's so many million miles beyond what I ever thought I could achieve in the game. So I'm not going to let the 2003 Open Championship define my career for what I've achieved because that was never ever in my mind. It was never in my mind to win a major championship. It was never in my mind to play in a Ryder Cup. It was in my mind to get on the European Tour because that was the environment I grew up in. So I like to think that that environment in Denmark has changed. So when these kids that are coming through now, they live in an environment where it's okay to achieve, it's okay to do great things on the golf course, and that gets them into a better position to 
win major championship and somebody will do it one day and I hope that that whole experience I've had has put some ground for them to achieve those things. Can I ask one question on the detail of it because Billy Foster who was your caddy at the time was, was quite specific about it and when you went up and this might seem strange to people who don't know Lynx bunkers but there was so much sand in that bunker to the right of 16th did you know it was not an impossible shot but that it was it was it was big trouble? Yeah I mean it was you know, one of the things with that whole scenario is that I just bogeyed 15 and, and I knew what was coming up. You know, 17 was pretty much impossible to hit the fairway that week. And so I knew what was coming up and, and, and I just, you know, I was trying to make three. And, you know, in hindsight, you should probably just try to make four and then get out of there. But, and the hard thing about the whole thing was that there was a lot of sand in that bunker. And, and you know, that's, as any professional golfer, you should still be able to to undertake that task if there's a lot of sand in the bunker. It's not like that's the first time I come across that, so it's no excuse. But the hard part about the bunker shot was that I was on an upslope and then there was an upslope of the green up to the flag and then it ran away behind the flag. So, you know, you're trying to get a little bit cute and then it comes back in the bunker because it wasn't difficult to get it out of the bunker. It was more that to get the distance. And once the first one didn't get where I actually, it's probably one of the most unbelievable up and down that the last bunker shot I hit because it was out of a footprint. So they, it, it turned into a disaster in the sense that there was so much sand in the bunker and when the ball came back, it rolled into the position I was in, uh, standing with my feet and, and where I'd hit the shot. So that, that became a bit of a disaster about it. But it was an extremely difficult bunker shot in what it was, even though it didn't look like much uh, on TV. And, you know, Billy, I mean, we, we've, to be honest, we've never really talked much about it since. But, um, you know, there was no doubt in both our minds that once we got there and saw where it was from the tee, we both probably both knew that, you know, this is going to take something pretty good to, to get, get out of this. With something like the 2005 USPGA where you finished uh, second to Mickelson at Baltimore, that would be a totally different feeling because he birdied the last and you part it wasn't as if you know, it was it was given to Mickelson he took it yeah I mean I hit a putt on the last green that I couldn't miss and and it did somehow I don't know I still don't know to the day how it did but it was I certainly put a few things to bed in in that PGA championship and you know I, I played the last few holes really well and so there was not really any you know you can't look back at that and go oh well that wasn't you know, you backed off it or anything. No, I didn't. I, I went all the way and I tried to push it all the way and it didn't happen. You know, you, you lost to, to one of the best players that played in, in our time and he did make birdie up the last and to win it by one. And, you know, that's major championships. You know, that day, is, you know, somebody's going to finish second and somebody's going to be there to push the guy that wins it. And, and you know, sometimes you you do it by pushing all the way to the end and sometimes you kind of don't quite do the right things in the end and you finish the second but that's golf is is a bit like that and I I put a lot of things to bed in that uh, in my mind in the 2005 PGA and then probably put everything else to bed in in 2011 when I finished fourth to to Darren at St George's because for me to come back to St George's and to play well you know was was a big moment for me for me personally not that you know that the whole golf tournament ended up being about Darren and, and what it should be and but for me personally it was a it was quite a big achievement to to set foot on that golf course. Okay, I feel I feel I've, I've raked open some scars here so let's uh, move <laughs> on. Well, let's look at the Ryder Cup because people will be listening to this podcast before the Ryder Cup some might be listening to it afterwards so 
congratulations or commiserations. <laughs> I don't know. But have you, are, you re- are you ready for this? Have you got a, a speech prepared? for? Well, there's so much that goes with the Ryder Cup beyond the actual playing of it and, and the team. You've got a whole lot of uh, formalities to go through as well. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot, that, uh, a lot of things that you need to think about. And I also sometimes think that because the captaincy is so long, I think you overthink a lot of things, so you, you kind of lose lose track a little bit about what it is that you're actually there to do. And my, my whole thing has always uh, has always been at any Ryder Cup I've gone to. As a player, I always thought it was about those 12 players that were there. And when I've gone as a vice captain, it's always been with giving everything to the 12 players that are playing. So that's the way I'll go into this Ryder Cup. It's about the 12 players that are there. I'm, you know, yeah, you can focus on all the other things that comes with it. You can focus on caddies and wives and girlfriends and tour staff and the European tour and, and all the things that comes around it. And that's obviously part of it. But in general, it's about the 12 players and it has to be about them. It's their moment to be recognised for what they are. They are the 12 best players in Europe. And that's what my captaincy will always be about. But when you've got 20 months to think about all these things, you do overthink sometimes, should they be wearing white underwear, black underwear, because that's sometimes the thing, details you come down to. And so you, you feel like sometimes you're sitting there and thinking, why am I spending so much time thinking about this? But then also, you know, any captain would feel like, yeah, well, that's what this captain did. And, that's what, and you almost feel like, oh, you've got to do the fraction a little bit better than that, or a little bit more than that, and a little bit. So you, you feel like it just builds, and that's where these things become so big. Because when I go back to the 97 Ryder Cup, it was Seve and 12 players. Yeah, there were some assistant captains, and there was, but it wasn't really anything. And, you know, the, the wives and girlfriends and, and the caddies, well, they were, they were part of it, but they weren't that big part of it and now you know it is a big family that goes it is everybody part of it and it's coaches and it's all these things that come with it which is great you know and that's what it probably should be but you know as a captain you think am I doing everything right by everybody and and all of a sudden you have 100 120 people to think about instead of just the 12 and in the end those are the 12 that it is about and it's those 12 that needs to go out on the golf course and and do what they can do Um, and that's what I want to create. I want those 12 to go away from the Ryder Cup and think, well, that was just the best week of my life, win or lose. Are you going big on jokes in the speech or is it serious, moving speech? No, but I'm not, I'm not that type of guy, so it's not, it's not, uh, that's, not my, uh, that's not my thing. So, you know, it, it's, for me, it's, it's about delivering something that I feel is, suits me and, and suits the environment uh, that I'm in. And so... That's what I go with, and you know that because for me to stand up, I got to be true to myself. And if I stand up in front of a lot of people and trying to be a big joker, you know, those twelve that are sitting there will go, "Who's this guy? We don't know him." So, so then I'm not true to myself, and they'll see right through that. So that's probably not really my place. You have a little guy with a drum kit beside going, "Brum, you." Yeah, that's like my official job. Um, it's about, uh, this, one of the serious parts of the job as well, and a, a job that you know from the other side as well is being told whether you're in or whether you're not. You might be expected to get a, a wild card pick, and there'll be lots of people expecting a, a phone call, good or bad, from you in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's not about. It's easy to tell, call somebody and tell them they got the job. It's about who you call and tell that they haven't got the job. You know, and, and, and that's that's what it's about. And you know, the Ryder Cup captaincy is an unbelievable honour and comes with a lot of great moments and a lot of 
things that is for very few people to experience in their lives. And you, you've got to take all those things in. And then it comes with a couple of moments where you feel like, mm, I don't really want to do this, but, but you have to. Yeah, and do you learn from, I mean, you had a, a bad experience in 2006 because that, that Ryder Cup that you thought you were you know, going to be involved in and weren't. So you learn from, from feeling the discomfort as a player. Yeah, but I don't think, you know, I, I think to put a couple of things to bed on that is that I don't ever really felt like I should have been a part of that team. But I, I felt like I put so much effort in that... Uh, one to one conversation sometimes probably is, is would have been the right thing there and you know but that was a different time and and that was probably not the way it was done and you know that was probably the way I look at it uh, that I would like to to do it so I'll be true to the way I want to do it and a lot of people have tried to put a lot more into what happened in 2006. I was really that, trying there, did you? Yeah, <laughs> no, but but if I'm going to be completely honest, it was for my part, it was blown blown a lot out of proportion in what what I actually felt and and what I actually said about it. So you know, but that that's what it is, and you know. As much as people think that I, I still walk around with a lot of thoughts about that, I, I don't really, you know, one thing people have got to remember is I stepped onto the first team in 1997 with Wuzi as a partner. And if I hadn't had him as a partner, my Ryder Cup career would look completely different today. It would be very short and very brief. So it, it would have not been great. So I'm very, very grateful to one of the greatest players that's ever played on the European Tour for what he's done for me. Now, one moment in time over two hours is not going to dictate how I feel about Ian Woosnam, that's for sure. So, so you know, that, that's kind of where that is. Um, but I'm a different person than Woosie, and I've grown up in a different era, and I'll do it the way I think it's right by those players that are there today. And he did what he thought was right at that moment in time, and I, that's, that's where that is. But my focus would be on the ones that are, are not in the team, because... People don't really care about who's in the team. When you make the picks, they'll go, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, he's picked him, but why didn't you pick oh, him? I can't believe he's left him. Yeah, exactly. So that's what it's going to be about. And any captain will know that, and that's what you go into, and that's what you've got to try and, you know, you've got to sit there and, and look at those moments. Actually, talking about your wild cards, there's uh, somebody who, oh, I was so close to getting a, a pick, a guy called Stephen Atkinson, who did what any golf fan would do. Actually, not any golf fan, any slightly mad golf fan would do. And he wrote a letter to you, but he ruled himself out of contention. And then you went, did you, you went to his house, didn't you? I don't think any golf fan was expected to write that letter. And that's probably why, what made it so special. I, I get home one day and there's this letter in the, and I open it. Um, and I'm reading this letter and I'm thinking, what's this? And initially I'm thinking... This is weird. This mm. is this is out there, and and it it takes me actually one or two times more to read it before I realize, start thinking about what this person has gone through, and and I mean it's funny, it's really funnily written, and 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 I look at it, and then I'm start thinking about the process of actually having to go through this and having to sit down and write this letter and send it, and so I thought, well, I'll try and share this with the world, mm. and and I just put it out on Twitter. It just kind of escalated, I have to say. Yeah. Can I, at this point, I know this is no, going to disappoint you, I've got to rule myself out. Don't. Of don't. You <laughs> no, were you the never in the consideration either. It's to save you the difficult <laughs> phone call and the tears and everything from both of us, I think, and the, the awkward man hug afterwards. But anyway, there we are. Okay, uh, so um, we have in our, our power to give you your dream four ball by the powers of... Uh, some bizarre resuscitation. But anyway, yeah, I saw your dream four ball was... Uh, it's, it's a pretty weighty four ball because it was at Winston Churchill, 
uh, JFK and Nelson Mandela. I don't know if you chose them because they're all awful at golf or because <laughs> of other attributes. But interesting, you've chosen some pretty powerful uh, leaders. So, I, I, you know, do you admire them just for those leadership qualities? I think I admire people that, you know, people that change the world and the world that we live in, either through having to stand up at a moment in time and, and stand up for some rights of, of either people or humanity or, you know, actively setting out to change the world in the way that they, they look upon the world. It's always, I don't think there's enough people like that. I don't think there's enough people that, that live it all the way to the end as well. And, and you know, for me, those people, you know, they come from three completely different parts of the world with completely different cultural backgrounds. And, and they just had a moment in time that was their time. And I, I believe that in, in every person, you know, every person had, has that moment in time where, where they stand up and they actually have, this is that moment that's going to form them. And you have to say all three of them ha- had that moment. Do you think that, that golfers, and golfers get asked this question, do you think that golfers live in a bubble and don't see the bigger picture sometimes of life outside of golf? I mean, there are plenty of well-read, intelligent golfers out there. Of course there are. But do you think sometimes that uh, they're, they're too scared to talk politics and, and things beyond golf? Yeah, but how many times do you see a sports person open their mouth and get told not to? Hmm. That's probably more the thing that where people go, okay, well, I don't get involved because people from outside world think, well, you're only a sportsman, so you're not entitled to have an opinion. You should be grateful for your life. Just because you do what you do doesn't mean that you don't have a brain and you don't, you're not entitled to have an opinion on things. And so I think that's, that's kind of where a lot of golfers or sports people just stick their head down and, okay, I'll just concentrate on my sport. And I think with their outlook on life and the way they travel the world, they see so many different cultures and so many different backgrounds. You know, they, they get quite a good perspective on what happens around the world. I'm not saying that we're not fortunate and we live in a bubble at times that is unachievable for a lot of people, but I, I still think that that opinion that we form in the way we see the world uh, sometimes could be of, of great help to other people. And do you think that's a problem? I mean, you know, you're on Twitter, we're, we're all on social media. Do you think that's a problem? Because it used to be just the papers might clamp down on you for saying something. But now there's a danger of things going viral and people getting themselves in trouble for just, as I say, speaking a, a, a truly held opinion. Yeah, but if Twitter's going to be the place that forms your opinion of the world, then I think we're all in trouble. So I think that's uh, Twitter is a tool and it's a... It's a fun place to be at times, and it can be a hard place to be at times. But if that's uh, if that's your opinion maker of the world, then then we've got serious trouble. Hashtag truth. <laughs> well, looking back in your career, you must you know I'm sure, I'm sure there's still some golf to be played. Actually, are you going to play seniors golf? Do you think? Can you see that? Yeah, I, I do actually. I, I I have this belief that seniors golf and the way it is today might need. I, f- I feel like it should change a little bit, be a celebration of golf worldwide and, and of, you know, all the people that's played the game for a long time and, and it should probably broaden its wings a little bit, you know, and that's how I see it. And I would like to be part of that. I, I'm not so sure that I, you know, I'll chase a seniors to a career the way it looks today. You know, I'm not, I see a lot of guys that I played with finding it extremely difficult then some find it fantastic and great but you know whatever it will be that the future holds will be what it will be I love playing golf I love being out there injuries over the last few years have really you know I hate being out on a golf course and and playing poorly because I don't don't have the time to practice and do all the things that you need to do to be able to play at the highest level so 
that part of it I don't like. And if, if that doesn't improve, um, then I probably won't pursue a seniors tour career because I just don't like playing poor golf. But if I can get myself somewhat healthy and, and get out there and, and do the practice and do the work, and then I enjoy playing playing tournament golf. And it's not about playing, you know, going out on a Friday afternoon and play with your mates. You know, yeah, I, I'll enjoy that. But I, I not enough that that's the thing. But competing is still something that will never leave you. So apart from playing golf, post Ryder Cup, what does what does the career or life hold for you? What do you what do you want to do? Well, I made myself a promise when I took this captaincy that I wouldn't wouldn't think about that until the 1st of October because those 12 players deserve that my focus is 100% on them. Okay. Well, let's look back instead. Final question. At what point then, How your mum having said, I don't think this golf is a good idea, at what point did she ever actually say to you specifically, actually, you know what, you made the right decision? No, but her... Silence tells me everything I need to know. <laughs> Excellent. Listen, Thomas, thanks very much for talking and all the best, um, all the best at the Golf National. Thanks for joining us on Life on Tour. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.